Thank you, Brother James. If we could please uh, go ahead and stand so that we may pray before we get into the Word. Blessed Lord, we call upon your name because we need you, Lord. And today we're going to learn more of what you had to tell those wonderful believers, Lord, in the first century in the city of Rome. It was a very powerful city, Lord, and many influences there. Indeed, for there was a saying that said that all roads left Rome, and that was not just literally, but also ideologically, Lord. I pray that today, Father, we may have clarification on how your gospel indeed has changed the world and even overcame Rome. And that indeed, Father, the way it overcame the pagans, that it would overcome our hearts, Lord, and the hearts of those who do not have you in their hearts, that indeed you may be king over us, Lord. That Christ, whom you have set as your ruler, the Holy One, that he may indeed rule from heaven and be upon all the universe, for it is in his hand that indeed your goodness and righteousness comes. For we ask it in your precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Alrighty, so as we begin, I've titled this a sermon, Gospel of Righteousness and Judgment of Wrath, because that's basically what we're going to be seeing in this letter. And the context of the letter, as we had stated before, it was that Paul was writing to the Church of Rome, which he had not had a chance to visit, and it was primarily probably a congregation of mostly Jews. And so the message here is being given to Jews, and that's why you have the addressing of the Gentiles that is uh, dealt with in different areas of the book. But the uh, wonderful thing at the beginning of the book is that the first thing that he deals with and that our brother uh, Pastor Gerardo gave us was the importance of congregating, the importance of the church. That these things are not just for us to read on our own and to bring to our own understanding, but that God has established his congregation, which we understand to be the body of Christ. And that it is in this context that we are to understand these things. And so I want to go ahead and uh, read Romans 1, verses 16 to 23, which is the text that we will be covering. Beginning at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written... The righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So beginning at verse 16, we see that there's a very powerful statement made here, which is that he states, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation, right, to those who believe. Now, why is he stating this? This is an interesting thing that he's stating because obviously the salvation that we have, brothers and sisters, is found in the gospel, right? It is the work of Christ that brings salvation. Even if you were in the Old Testament and you were under the, the old dispensation, if I may call it, and you had the sacrificial system that was covering your sins, 
It did not take away sin. It's the death of Christ. It's the life of Christ that brought that righteousness. And so when he speaks of power, he's actually speaking it in the context because, as I stated, where was he? He was in the city of Rome, which was the, the, uh, the empire, the head of the empire. And so when we look at people back in those days, even though they did believe in their gods and everything, they basically believed in the power of their empires. When people looked to the Roman Empire, they had a, an empire that was obviously the strongest empire at that time in the world. As a matter of fact, I would say it was even stronger than its previous pre preceding uh, uh, empires. So what he's actually stating is that the power that we have is not based on human power. It's not based on this empire that we have. So when we speak the gospel, even today, brothers and sisters, when we speak the gospel, people don't find any power in it. The only people with whom this has power in is with us. With us in whom the word of God is being affected. But he is, in essence, confirming that. Because what do men trust in? They trust in all other things. And in particularly in the power of men. But what I want you to see is that this has never been the way in which God has done it. Even though he rose up the nation of Israel, and he had his kings, his authorities, and they fought against other nations and beat those nations at times, right? It was not their power that made it happen. David did not conquer because of his wit and power, but it was because God was with him. It was the unction of God that brought this. And so I'd like to use as an example of this, actually Zechariah 4.6. In Zechariah chapter 4, we have Zerubbabel, who was under the... Uh, uh, one of, one of, I don't remember if it was a Persian... The Persian uh, king. I think, he, I think it was under the Persian king that he was under. And what God is revealing here is that he would be using Zerubbabel to be a, a, a restoring of the uh, of the of Israel of the of the of the empire of Israel. And when he speaks regarding this work, this is what he says in verse six. He says, "Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power.'" But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Have you guys heard that before? Right? Mm -hmm. I know that when I was growing up, I heard that a lot. And the message is very clear. Whatever we do, you want power, brothers and sisters? It comes from God. It's not going to come from your hand. Even if God made you a powerful person, it's ultimately in the spirit of the Lord. And that's what we are trusting in. We're trusting in and looking to the power of God. One other thing that I do want to point out is that philosophy was a big thing. In many ways, it still is even today in academia. But in, in those days, that was very much part of the Roman Empire. We know that that's something that developed uh, strongly amongst the Greeks. The Greeks had actually an effect on the Romans. And so they very much relied on Greek philosophy for their worldview. So when the gospel comes and presents its message, a lot of the people were very skeptical against it. They actually looked down upon it. And that's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul is actually speaking of the power of the message of God. Because that's where we have our power. It's not in being able to humanly argue with other people, but understanding that the words that we have are divine words. And it is these words, particularly the word of the gospel, that brings a salvation to us. The next verse is verse 17. Reading as follows, it said, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Some translations say faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Now, the righteous who live by faith, that's another statement that's obviously very important to us because it's basically stating to us how we are to live. What kind of people are we to be? Are we people that are supposed to be trusting in what we think is good and what where our heart directs us? No. We're actually supposed to be trusting in the Lord. And this is a statement that we know that is from the Old Testament. It's actually from the book of Habakkuk, which we were actually preaching on uh, not too long ago. And we learned from the particular context that in there, the people of Israel were actually going under destruction. And there was great wickedness that was happening in the land. And Habakkuk was obviously com confused, I may say, or surprised at it, thinking, if we serve a righteous God, why is God allowing for all this great evil to happen? And the obvious answer is, God has actually a plan and a work that he's working out. And what are we to do about it? We're to have faith in the Lord. Well, in the same way that those people of Israel we're supposed to have that faith in the Lord. We too have to have that faith. We have to live by faith. And it's the righteousness of God that is brought to us through that. It's not your righteousness, brothers. It's not your good, your good hand, your good ways that are going to get you to the Lord. Because as, I don't have the passage, but as that passage says in Isaiah, that our righteousness are as filthy rights. You know? One of the things that I, that I thought was interesting is that uh, some of you know my, my friend Patrick was living in Australia. He actually uh, studied in the University of Berkeley. And I had a conversation with him, and he took a class in uh, comparative religions. And the professor there is a gentleman by the name of Houston Smith. And he's actually world-renowned. And he wrote a book, I think, called The Religions of the World or World Religions. I can't remember what it was called. But one of the, in, in the conversation that I was having with him, I, uh, he, uh, I asked him, you know, because he actually had grown up, yeah, I think it was in China, you know, being brought up by, by Christian missionaries and saw, but he has now, he had a very different view. His view is that all the religions of the world contain the truth, not just Christianity. So he is, that, we call that ecumenically, you know, someone who believes that all the religions have the same truth. And so I asked him, you know, how, how, how could that be? How could it be that someone that was brought up by Christian parents have that kind of a view? And uh, he told me, well, I, I, I couldn't really tell you, he says, but I do remember, you know, uh, going and asking him a, a question about, you know, and I, and I told him, this, so, so how does he determine goodness? And he said, well, he says, one time I went up to him and I asked him, so do you believe that men are generally good? You know? And he said, well, consider the things that happen with men. You know? They lie, they manipulate, they steal from people, they commit murder, look, they, they create unjust wars. So he says, oh, so you're saying that man is generally bad. Well, on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of hospitals and charity and, and you know, and, and, and help that, you know, countries give to, to one another. And so he didn't really answer it. You know, he says, so, so this is how I was puzzled. So you're, are you saying that, that, that they're, you know, basically good? And he told me, yeah, I was, I was very confused about that. But to me, what it seemed like is that what he was trying to say was that there's a good side to man and there's a bad side to man. And if we don't know God, brothers and sisters, that's ultimately what we're going to look at the world as, right? Because what is the world? It consists of people that do good and people that do bad. And sometimes, I hate to say it, but even good people do bad, right? And that's why it's no wonder, if, if any of you are familiar with the uh, Hindu religion, the Hindu religion doesn't just uh, worship those things that are good. They actually think that that which is evil should also be praiseworthy. They have a, I don't know if you guys have seen this uh, goddess called the Kali, she wears like these kind of skulls, you know, on her, it's kind of dark with the skulls on her, uh, uh, around her neck. You know, why? Because they actually celebrate death. 
For them, death is just part of life. There's good, there's bad, there's light, there's dark. That's just life. But because we have the Lord, we understand that what we are to look to is the light. We are to look for what is good. Death is not a good thing, brothers. When God made Adam and Eve, did he make them to die? No. He made them to have life. And that's what the Lord seeks from us. That we have life. And the way we receive that life is by trusting in the work that God is doing. Not in our works. Because even if we look to ourselves, do we do some good? We may. We may do some good. Right? Even unbelievers, in a sense, right? Do some good. But is it the righteousness? Is it the goodness that God is looking for? No. Why? Because we serve a perfect God. And what God is looking for is perfection. And brothers and sisters, I hate to say it, and I say it to myself, I don't have it. I'm unable to be a clean thing before the Lord. But the great and awesome power of the, of the gospel is that he sent his son so that each and every one of us may be not only forgiven of those sins, but that we may be cleansed and that we actually may be made a holy thing. Because that's the work of God. And that's the power of salvation, and that's what we look to. I'd like to take a look at, actually, a, a quote from Luther regarding this particular issue, regarding faith. Because I think he, uh, he actually makes it very clear in, in his discovery, because as we know, the statement, uh, the just shall live by faith, had a, a big impact on him when he was reading the book of Romans. And it says, uh, Luther wrote, For God does not want to save us by our own but an extraneous righteousness, one that does not originate in ourselves, which does not arise on earth, but comes from heaven. So that's what we see, brothers. We're looking for the righteousness that doesn't come from within us. You know, it comes from heaven. And this is, of course, uh, just in case you're interested, uh, from his uh, lecture on, on, the, on the book of Romans. But there's a psalm, Psalm 118, that I think uh, greatly states this. Because we're seeing that even though this is a message that's being given to us in the book of Romans, it's there in the Old Testament. The same concept is there in the Old Testament. And this is very well seen in Psalm 118. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So very clearly we're seeing here... Again, a response to what happened in the previous verse, that our trust is not to trust in men, not to trust in men of power, but our trust is actually in the ultimate king. It's in Christ and in God the Father. And of course, the Spirit as well. And so we see that uh, one of the things that I really like about this particular text is that it actually speaks about God being our helper. Now, I'll be very honest with you, brothers and sisters, I, I actually don't look at, at God as my helper. I look at God more most of the time as my master. But this is an interesting text because it actually speaks of God being your helper. So when you call out to the Lord, this is an important thing to remember. When you're in need of help, look to your Lord. He is your helper. This is also a great statement because this also shows you, ladies, that you are not a second, you're not a secondary thing. Why did God create woman to be a helper to them? And if God can be a helper to us, and you bear the image of God, then you yourself, even as a helper, have a great role that you play in, in marriage. So let us remember that, you know, as we uh, have our lives, especially as husbands and wives. Well, we are told that the, 
men are supposed to be the head and we represent Christ, the woman herself has a role to play too. And it's reflected in the nature of God. It's a reflection of the nature of God. Going now, now to uh, verses 18 and 19. We're now going to begin to see that previously we were learning right now about the righteousness of God and where it comes from. Now we're going to see what God's attitude towards unrighteousness. And this is in, in, uh, starting at verses 18 and 19. It says, For the wrath of God is real from heaven against all ungodliness and, un and all unrighteousness of men who by, unrighteous, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Now, this is an interesting statement here, because when, particularly as Calvinists, right, or, or being a Reformed church, we strongly believe that for you to be able to see, to be able to know God, God has to reveal that to you. Salvation is something that God has to give to you. It doesn't naturally come to man. But what the book of, of uh, Romans, in this letter that Paul wrote, reveals to us, is that there is a perception, there is knowledge that man has of God. And for many, uh, many of you might have uh, friends that are atheists. I know that I've had them. And uh, I know that the atheists get really mad at this particular situation because they say, ah, that's completely baloney. You know, I don't believe in God at all. I don't see God as, as, a, as a reasonable thing. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, then when the text is talking about this, in what way is it talking about? If people deny God, right, then how, how, how is it that they do know? Well, if we look at the text, we're going to begin to see that it speaks about basically the way the world is made. So when we're looking right now at, in uh, the Sunday school, at these videos that we saw regarding the, the creation, what are we learning? We're learning the way in which uh, God created the world and that when you actually begin to look at the world, if you have the proper understanding, you're going to see that it's actually God, that there is a God. Because at the end of the day, even if you look at man, what is man? Is man really the same as a hippopotamus or a cat? No. We see obvious differences, right? Or is or is, are men as rocks? I mean, there are some men that are as rocks, right? They don't do anything, right? But, uh, but in you know, but humanly speaking, you know, we we reflect something different from the creation. First of all, to me, one of the strongest proofs of God is the fact that we have the ability to actually, in essence, work in the creation. This this is in reference to Genesis, where it actually speaks of us having dominion. You don't see that with the other animals. I mean, there are animals that you know create things, you know, like the beaver, right? You know, he naturally makes his little dams, and that's an advantageous to us. But I've never seen a beaver make a spaceship. Have you guys ever seen that? Right? You ever seen a, a beaver even go to the moon? <laughs> right? No, that's that's it. that's something that's the ingenuity that God has given man. And I think that that's what this is referring to. This is referring to the fact that God made us a certain way. He made us reasonable creatures, so that when we look at our lives, we should be able to see these things. We have the ability to see these things. As a matter of fact, we're seeing them. We're seeing them in nature. But what do men do? What are men doing? Those of us who have been called by God, like called by Christ, we don't do that because we understand. But those who are up there, they don't use their own reasoning to really look at things. And we're going to see a little later how that actually leads into the uh, pagan thinking and how foolish that is. But let me go ahead and uh, uh, take another, another what's it called, a... Uh, 
a quote that I'd like to read from, which is from John Murray. He's actually a Christian uh, commentator, expositor. And it says, uh, John Murray, for example, writes, Ungodliness refers to perversity that is religious in character, unrighteousness to what is moral. The former is illustrated by idolatry, the latter by immorality. The order is no doubt significant in the apostles' description of the degeneracy, impiety is the precursor of immorality. So what is this saying? What this is saying is that there's a reason why he says ungodliness and, and uh, immorality. Because to me, I used to think it was the same thing. When I think of ungodliness, I think, oh, those that are sinners, right? Those that don't do what, what God desires. But what, it, what this is actually stating to us is that in the Greek, when it speaks about ungodliness, it's actually speaking about a going against God. So it's not merely that, you know, we go our own way, but that there's an element in which we actually go against God. So that when we're talking about the wrath of God, it's not that God is just this, you know, this, uh, you know, this wicked king, like the wicked kings that, you know, they, you don't do what they do, and they get mad, and they throw a little tattoo, and I'm, I'm going to get you. You know, it's not that kind of a thing. What it's actually showing us is that what we are doing is we're becoming enemies of God. What do our enemies do, brothers and sisters? They work against us. They even want to kill us, right? So that when we see that, when Paul is speaking here about men, he's speaking about the nature of what they became. They became enemies of God. And not only by becoming enemies of God, but also by taking on immorality in the process. But what I like about this quote is that what he's actually saying is, notice the way he states it. He didn't say they were immoral and then they became ungodly. It actually says that they were ungodly. And as a result of their ungodliness, they become immoral. So that, that means that the reason why we are immoral when we are immoral, brothers and sisters, is because in our nature, we're going against God. That's the fact of the matter. We're acting as enemies of God, right? And that's why when, when it speaks about his wrath, that's why God has wrath, because we are acting against God. And the idea is that we should not be enemies of God. When you have faith, when, when uh, Abraham had faith, what was he actually called? He was called a friend of God. Correct. He was called a friend of God. And there's other texts that actually indicate that when you come to faith with the sisters, just like Abraham, you become a friend of God. Even the Jews themselves in their, in their ancient writings have this. And that's what we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be in good terms. We've we, we got to be friends with God. We've got to have peace with God. But because of sin, we become enemies. And that's why God judges. So God has every right to judge. Because we are acting against it. As a matter of fact, I want to show how basically idolatry is that. And an example of this actually comes from Exodus 20, where we get this conscience. And we're, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 3 to 5, I believe. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who what? Hate me. So those who practice idolatry are people who hate God. And that's what it is. Now, it's no wonder why if I meet a Muslim and I'm trying to, you know, speak to him about Christianity, he's not very happy about it, right? Or even the Jews who are, you know, looking to the law, for their uh, way of righteousness, why they, they don't like, you know, the Christian concept, why they're against Christ. 
because they have, they've actually made an, an idol out of their religion. They're not following the true religion. If, you, if we read the Old Testament and we truly read it, you will see Christ in it. I believe that if you were to just read the, through the text, you would see Christ. Now, many of you might be asking, well, then how do you explain so many Jews that don't see it? Right? But do you know how many Jews actually read through the Bible? Just like many Christians. And sadly, there's many Christians who come to church and they don't read through their Bibles. Right? What are they relying on? They're relying on their teachers. They're relying on the things that are being said. But if we were to read the text for itself, itself and go through it, I think it would attest for it itself and you would see Christ in it. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a, a great uh, philosopher, Christian philosopher by the name of Francis Schaeffer, and he would actually use philosophy, he would argue in a philosophical way for Christianity and the truth of the gospel and the, and the message of God. And the interesting thing is that he grew up in a household that was not a Christian household. He, and he got into philosophy, and one day he decided, you know, I'm going to read the Bible for myself. I don't, want, I don't want to hear a priest. I don't want to hear a pastor. I don't want to hear a rabbi. I'm just going to read through it. And he said, the thing that I found most astonishing was that when I read through it, he says, I understood. There were many things I understood, but there were some things I didn't understood. But one thing I did know, someone very important was coming. Someone very important, divine, was coming. And so just in him reading it from a, from a uh, humanistic point of view, he came to be persuaded of the message of Christianity because he saw that even the Old Testament attested to it. And we have to be very careful that when we are, in essence, following our religion, that we don't get cut up in our traditions because that's been a, a great error within the Christian church. The reason why we have so many denominations is because people have their traditions. And who builds these traditions? Men. And obviously we do it because we are reasonable creatures. We're trying to make sense of the Bible, but we have to be very careful, you know, what our motivations are and what knowledge we're relying on. What we want to do is we want to continue to meditate on the Word of God because that's what gives us that revelation. I'd like to read now from Isaiah 44, and I really like this particular text because this is one of the texts that actually speaks to what I had spoken of earlier, which is how men develop certain ways of thinking, but you see that it's their own error. They do it because it is their desire to go that way. But if you actually look at what we have presented by the prophet Isaiah, it's actually very reasonable. Verse 19 and 20 says, No one stops to think. No one has knowledge and understanding to say, Half of it I used it for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my hand, my right hand, excuse me, a lie? And so this is speaking about, so if God, if the idols are gods, right? Uh, actually, the first thing I would ask myself is, wouldn't they make their own idols, right? Yet, who are the ones making the idols? It's the men that are making the idols. So the interesting thing is that he's actually making fun about how they don't even consecrate. You see that they don't even have a consecrated uh, concept. So in other words, in the Old Testament, when you look at the, uh, the, for instance, the tabernacle, that was something that was supposed to be 
consecrated. In other words, uh, yeah, consecrated means set aside, something that was set aside. So in other words, it wasn't, oh yeah, well, there's some, some wood that was left for making a house. Come and bring it, we're going to make the tabernacle. No, this was specific wood that was used specifically for God. You know, and the vessels that were created were specific to God. But what did the pagans do? They used whatever was left over and they'd make their gods. And so he's saying, really? That's what you trust in? That's what you believe in? This thing that was made by your hand? This is the thing that, that, that's going to save you? And so we see that there's a reasoning to things. But what happens? Why do men trust in these things? Because they want to. They want to make their own gods. They want to trust in the things that they believe are good. And instead of looking to that which is outside of the creation, what are they doing? They're looking at the things that they know and trying to make sense out of the things that they know when in reality, if we look at the world, it's very complex. If whatever God is, it's got to be something that we don't know. But we see that men don't reason that way. Instead, they give in to their own you know, uh, ideas and their own explanations, and that's the problem. They're trusting in who again? They're not even trusting in the right. They're trusting in their own understanding. Let us now look at uh, verses uh, 20 and 21. It says, for what can be known, okay, I already read that, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So this is actually making further the point that I was actually pointing out, that when we begin to think about the divine nature, we have to understand that whatever God is, it has to be greater than what is here. Because if God is like an animal, once again, as I said, can animals create things? Can rocks create things? No. As a matter of fact, the only create, really creative being on this earth would have to be man. So if anything, you know, it would actually make sense if, uh, in a sense, they worship men. And they did, right? That's another thing that they did. They would worship uh, men. But their views were so base that they were even basically comparing the gods to things that were made by God, instead of understanding that these are things that are outside of God. I'd like to read from uh, Jeremiah uh, 23, verse 24, which states, can a, man, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And so what I'm trying to show here is about the nature of God, that God is something far bigger than what is in the world. And so it's a very small God if you're looking to your idols. It makes sense because if he created the universe, he had to he has to inhabit everything. Right? Even even now as we speak, you know, we think of God and seeing God, we think like seeing God outside, but in reality we are told that God is invisible. And if God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, that means that he's right here. He's right here. He's in me and he's in you guys. He's everywhere. So that should be something that should be understood from how the world has been uh, created. As a matter of fact, another thing that, that shows us that man, men actually do, even in, in their own humanistic uh, understanding, perceive things correctly, is Acts 17, where Paul went to Athens, and he went to go speak with the philosophers. And remember, we were talking about how, you know, in that day, they were very strongly influenced by philosophy. And we see that actually uh, the Apostle Paul had knowledge of that. He, he had knowledge of his culture. 
And we see in verse 28 and 29 it says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of, ign of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And right here, what he's talking about here is that as the text is telling this man from a very early point, went his own way. And because he went his own way, and God given him over, which we'll learn about actually with Pastor Gerardo uh, in the next sermon, giving them over, they went their own way. And God allowed for humanity, in essence, to uh, reap as they sow. Right? Because that's what happens with these different uh, peoples. They were not a righteous people, so they suffered out of the consequences of that. But we see that what he is making the point is that even in their own philosophy, they understood that they came from God. That they were the offspring of God. Isn't that what we learn in Genesis 1? Whose image do we bear? We bear the image of God. We bear the image of, my, of our creator. So even in this text, we see that the philosophers understood this. And yet, when the gospel was preached to them, when the God of, of, uh, of the Israelites was preached to them, they didn't accept it. They rejected it. Because they chose to, to go with their men and their ideas. John 3 states, And this is a judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because what? Their works were evil. So that's why people believe what they do, brothers and sisters. is because of their nature. Their nature is evil. The reason why people believe in evil things is because that is by nature where it comes from. And that's why we have a need for God. Why we have a need for Christ. Because Christ is referred to as the Redeemer. Why is he called the Redeemer? He's not only the Redeemer, brother, because obviously we lose our salvation. Or excuse me, we lose our, our position with God, right? And obviously, because of the curse of Adam, we now have to have death because of sin. But because he not only, he's not only uh, reversing that, but he's also reversing everything. Is he only going to make us anew? Is he only making men anew? No. He's going to make the whole world anew. As a matter of fact, the whole world fell and is perishing away because of man. And that's one of the ways that we know that Christ is not only a redeemer of man, but he's a redeemer of the universe. He's bringing it all back into place because it's gone the way of sin. I'm going to now go to the uh, final verses, which is verses 22 and 23, which say, I'm sorry, I got lost here in my, oh, there we go, verse 22, claiming to be wise, I'm trying to find it in my paper here, <laughs> well, I'll read it from there, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so we're seeing here that, you know, men begin to postulate things because they're trying to, in essence, find wisdom. As a matter of fact, philosophy is, it's, it actually means a love of wisdom. That's what it's supposed to be. And so, as we're living in the world, because of the fact that we're made in, in the image of God, we seek meaning, right? When we're living our lives, we want to do things that are meaningful. We don't live just to live, right? We don't do things just for the heck of it. Right? Or else we would be an animal. Right? 
Animals have their nature. I mean, will a lion think twice about eating you? Will he take into account that you're a mother, or that you're a father, or that you have children that you have to raise? No. By nature, he will, he will eat you. He'll eat you alive. <laughs> you know? But with us, it's a, very, it's a very different situation. We look for meaning. We build bonds. Right? And that's the same thing. That's one of the reasons why when we talk about having a relationship with the Lord, it's not just this God that, you know, for a lot of times, the, another way that they looked at the gods is a, as these very angry beings. And uh, this is actually related to even Christianity in the sense that in the old religions, the reason why they used to make sacrifices is to appease the gods. And you have it actually in Greek philosophy. You know, that's why you have uh, you know, those images of, of the virgins being brought up and put in the ropes and, you know, for, for the, you know, being sacrificed to the gods is because they were trying to appease the gods. Well, they understood that God had to be appeased because God was angry. And in the same way, we serve a God that is angry. And he actually as well has to be appeased. But that's where the significance of Christ is so necessary. Because instead of it being our blood, right, the reason why we have deaths is because that's the way God is appeased through the shedding of blood. And instead of it being the shedding of our blood, Christ comes and his blood is shed. That's why it's said that he did propitiation. Propitiation was the appeasement of wrath. So if Christ, if the blood of Christ is upon you, brothers and sisters, then you know you're at peace. God is at peace with you. But for those that do not believe, is the blood of Christ on them? No. Because once again, they are enemies of God. And if they are enemies of God, that means they are working against God. And guess what? God is going to work against you. And that's why it's very important that as individuals, we have to realize it's not merely enough to believe in God. And that by thinking that we do certain things that, you know, we're making God happy. But we have to actually be friends of God. We have to be the people of God. We're also called children of God. If we're children of God, what do we as parents, those of you who are parents, how do you want your children to be? What are you instilling in them? You're instilling in them those values, those things that you know that are good. You want them to be good people or good citizens, if I'm using in that term, because obviously there's really no good people, right? But in a relative sense, you know, we want our children to grow up to be good citizens. And in order to do that, you have to instill your values and your goodness. And that's what God has done in Christ. God has given us his righteousness so that we may be clothed with it. And those, if you're being clothed in the righteousness of God, then you have to live righteously. You need to forsake sin. We need to take sin seriously. Because we have to be reflections of what God desired. God made us in his image, and that's what God desires. That's the world that God made. He made a good world, and he wants us to be good people. And that's what sanctification is. Sanctification is us, in this world, working to be a holy people. And God is working in us. Now, that work, obviously, is not complete here. None of us are going to be perfect, right? But we know what righteousness is, and we know what to practice, and that's what we've got to do. The day will come when Jesus Christ will come and he's going to put an end to all things and obviously ultimately put an end to death. But in that, he's going to make things right and part of making that right is giving us a new body. We're going to be remade along with this whole world that is to be remade. I'd like to go ahead and read from Colossians 2, 18, which states, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason, 
by his sensuous mind. Now, what I like about this is that this is actually speaking about the different practices that are out there. So asceticism is basically, you know, the practice, the way a lot of religions do where, you know, they don't eat certain meats, right? They don't wear certain things, you know, uh, or the worship of angels, worshiping, you know, the, the heavenly host, which, you know, is exactly a violation of the command that was in Exodus. We're not supposed to do that. Do, did angels die for you, brother? Did angels make you? Then we should have, even right there, that's reasonable enough to say, why the heck are you going to be worshiping angels? You know, if, if anything, angels are like ourselves. We're workers of God, right? You, you give glory to the, to the owner. You don't give glory to the worker, right? You give glory to the worker if he's being obedient to the test, right? But the one that we owe our allegiance to is God. But here it tells us that the reason why that happens is because of our own minds, the sensuousness, the sensuousness of our own mind. Now, it's very easy to uh, talk about, you know, the idols and the images that people worship. But we have to keep in mind that idolatry isn't just making, you know, statues and images and worshiping them. It actually has to do with whatever is not God. Whatever you put before God, that is your idol. And in Colossians 3.5, he actually uses very strong language against this. He states, the Apostle Paul, of course, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So those people who are consumed by those things, they don't get, uh, what is it? Uh, I forget the expression, but basically, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. They're, they are committing idolatry. Those who are consumed by those things, if, if people are consumed, consumed by gambling, whatever it is, prostitution, drugs, that's your God. That's what you're doing. That's why these things you must uh, stay away from. Now, in, uh, in conclusion, I, I have three uh, applications that I'd like to take a look at. And the uh, first application has to do with the question, how shall we live? Right? And out of the things that we've come to know about God, how shall we live? And the answer is by faith in what God has done in Christ. And I'd like to look at Galatians 2.20 which basically commands us to do this and gives us a purpose. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't think I could have put it in better words myself. <laughs> Second point is we live righteously because we love him and are no longer children of wrath. For that, I'd like to take a look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. For God has destined, excuse me, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So that's the desire of God, that we live in him, that we live with him. That's the aim of our life. Final one is number three, which is beware of falling to the trap of idolatry. And for that, I'd like to go to uh, 1 Corinthians 10, looking at first the uh, admonition in verse 14. As many of you know, one of the, one of the terms that, uh, that is used in another scripture is, you know, it says to flee from sexual immorality, right? So that's how dangerous that is, right? It says flee, and it uses uh, Joseph as an example, but... When it speaks of idolatry, it uses the very same language. In verse 14, it says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
So these things that we have that are trying to take the place of Christ in our lives of God, flee from it. And in verse 21 and 22 it says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And this is particularly speaking to those of you who are people that believe in Christ. If you confess Christ, be very careful, brothers and sisters, about what we're putting in before Christ. Because it is idolatry. And one of the things that we have to remember is that God says he is a jealous God. He does, he does not take well for us are practicing idolatry, so we have to take it seriously. Because first of all, who is uh, omnipotent? Who's the one that's uh, omni, uh, omnipowerful? That's God. It's God himself. We are weak, unless we, we think we're stronger than God, right? But we cannot even touch God. So we have to be reasonable people and understand that these things have to be uh, taken seriously. So my, my hope is that we, we will have seen in the, this particular text of Romans, First of all, that righteousness is something that comes from God. Second is that God has a right to basically destroy whatever he desires because he, he is angry because whatever goes against him, he has every right to destroy it. I like the way uh, one teacher put it. He said, uh, uh, God made the world and he has the right to wreck it if he wants to, right? So that's you know the second thing that we have to understand. And the third thing, brother, brothers and sisters, is that we have to be very careful not to fall into the trap of idolatry. We want to worship God as He is. We have to have a proper understanding of God. People have different convictions on the uses of cross, uses of images. My conviction is that there's nothing wrong with that as long as we're not doing what, what the uh, book of Exodus tells us, which is bowing down and worshiping. If you think that's God, you're in trouble, brothers and sisters. What we have to see is that these things are things that they point to God. We have to have a proper understanding of God. And it's very important that we teach our children what God is. And God is not a man. When we think of Jesus, we don't say that he's God because he's a man. Because he's one God in what? Two natures. Right? So it's very important that we understand that what we worship is the divine. And Christ, while he has a human body and a human nature, he is also the divine, that which is not human. And that is what we worship those. We worship the divine. Let us go ahead and look to our Lord in prayer. Blessed Lord, let our love be made pure. Let our intention be made pure. Let our hearts be uh, careful in the things that we consider. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Lord. And so do our actions come from, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us today. That you would indeed help us to go out into this world, knowing that it is your righteousness that you are giving to us, my Lord that is filling up, indeed, Father, our lives. And that when we are sinning, Father, and we are going our way, that we flee from it, Lord. That we flee for it, from it so that we do not fall into idolatry, but that instead we look to you, our blessed and holy God, who is our Father, who is our friend, and who is our Savior. So we ask you, Lord, to be able to be with us, to go out in this week, to bless us in the days to come, particularly as we get uh, ready for Christmas, Lord, that we spend great time with family, honoring the most wonderful thing that was given to us, the greatest gift of all, which is your blessed Son, Jesus Christ. And in His name we ask all this. Amen.